That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, you feeling stressed out? Are you freaked out because Donald Trump might become president again this year? Well, one of the best ways to unwind after a week of soul-crushing mayhem is the After Party podcast presented exclusively on our Patreon page. It's a commercial-free 90-minute podcast, kind of like eavesdropping on an evening chat between me and my girlfriend Kimberly Johnson from the Start Me Up podcast. It's way more personal than the free shows with all kinds of revelations about our personal lives, but with all the latest political commentary in there, too. And you can still catch our three-episode series about the 80s, again exclusively on our Patreon page. So don't miss out. Subscribe to the After Party level at patreon.com slash Show, And you're also going to get two Shadow Docket episodes included in that level of support every damn week. Again, that's patreon.com slash Show. And now let the cartoons begin. The Bob Seska Show. Bob Seska. Did you ever see anything about Seska that made you suspicious? The Bob Seska Show. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, January 17, 2024, and this is the Bob Seska Interview on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Bob. Hello, Bob. Hi, day 1092 of the Biden-Harris administration, 293 days until the 24th presidential election. You can find me on threads and Instagram, the Bob Seska, Twitter, Bob Seska underscore go, and our Patreon is bobseskashow.com. And one of my favorite political scientists returns to the show today. I can't wait. The election whisperer, Rachel Bittekoffer, is here to talk about the Iowa caucuses, Joe Biden's campaign strategy, the accuracy of the polls. And we talked about Rachel's brand new book, Hit Him Where It Hurts, drops on February 6th. Link in the description. You can also follow Rachel on her substack called The Cycle, thecycle.substack.com. Meantime, don't forget to support this podcast by subscribing to us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Bob Seska Show. Okay, here comes the stupendous Rachel Bittacoffer. More fun, more music, the Bob Seska Show. Yeah, the problem is I'm, I've been iced in my house for five days with my family, and they're loud. You know what I mean? God, yeah. <laughs> How goes the great freeze of 2024? I can't fucking wait to get out of this house. <laughs> <laughs> so oh it's like God. you just got like an ice storm. Is that what it is? Yeah. It's not. Dude, it's we a, got, yeah. we, we're a tropical rainforest. I mean, we're mm-hmm. not tropical. We're a deciduous or whatever. Um, a yeah. rainforest, right? Right, right, right. So we don't get snow in the valley on the I-5 up and down. I mean, occasionally, right? Yeah, And then this year, we just got the fucking perfect storm where the weather, the wind brought in <laughs> the temps from eastern Oregon, which our wind always use, runs west to east, but not sometimes. And this time, what happened was with the timing is it 
hit right with the snow. So instead of snow, I mean, it looks like snow, but it's always been ice. So like for five days, you go, I, I moved my truck and went to the store one day because I only provisioned for two days, not mm-hmm. five days. So I had to get there, mm-hmm. right? And man, I come back and park my truck, go out there the next day. It's not even making a dent into the, like, it doesn't even make an impression, the tires. Like 6,000 pounds sitting on top of that sheet ice, you know? Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Like, imagine a whole world as a hockey rink floor, <laughs> and that's what we are in, dude. Does that happen a lot in the Pacific Northwest? Do you get a lot of ice storms like that, or is this an anomaly? No, that's why we and we don't even have like. I mean, even when we get normal snow, it shuts everything down because we don't have any of the snow removal equipment that they have in the Cascades. Mm-hmm. You know, because it never snows here. Maybe once every couple of years, we'll get some <laughs> shit storm like this. So that's what we're dealing with, man. And it fucking blows. I hate being stuck in my house. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's a good spectator sport to pass the time. Find yeah. yourself like a, a hilly area of your neighborhood and just oh, watch the car sledding. slide backwards down the hill. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. We've been doing lots of sledding. It's been great for the kids, though, right? Imagine, imagine five, four days of snow that never smushes, never wears out. <laughs> And that, you can't make snowballs or build a snowman or a snow fort or anything like that. You need a fucking sledgehammer to even break into it, right? <laughs> Let's talk about uh, the election and everything that's happening right now, Rachel. There's a, a new poll out today showing Nikki Haley uh, allegedly tied with Trump in New Hampshire. It sounds like an outlier to me, but on a scale of 1 to 10, what's the actual likelihood that Trump isn't the nominee? It's remote, right? Zero. 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 <laughs> I'm going to put it at zero. And I'm a person that thought maybe the Republican field will define Trump as too much of a risk. They'll all do it together. They're all make disqualify him in the eyes of the base. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, we could see them try to nominate someone else because anybody who's not in the cult, and, and I consider the MAGA folks to be in the cult, right? Yeah. Anyone who's not fully in that cult understands that actually – Donald Trump presents the worst nominee for them in terms of winning the general election, not the best, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so they've long wanted to be able to dethrone him and, and get anyone else. I mean, anyone else except for maybe Vivek Ramaswamy would be good, right, in that in uh, an asset to them in terms of, of running in that general against Biden. So, um, but it became obvious to me that that was never going to happen in the fall. We never saw any transition. And that's when the, you know, most people that were going to vote in these primaries at least started to pay some attention to them by, by the fall. And when that really failed to move anything significantly, except for coalescing around Haley as the only option to possibly win other than Trump, um, then I knew it was probably going to be him and, and the Iowa caucus results just affirm that, yeah. that there's just no appetite in that. We're, t- we're talking about such a, a segment of America's population, hardline Republican base voters. That's who's going to vote in a Republican primary. Mm-hmm. And they, they have made it clear. They want Trump. They love Trump. No one's ever told them not to love Trump or why they couldn't <laughs> win yeah. with them. Yeah. So they're going to go with that. And, I do think there's potential Haley will win in New Hampshire or come in even with Trump in New Hampshire Mm -hmm. Um, because of the presence of all the independents. The Northeast is politically unique in our country. It's very different than everywhere else because it has the the modal, um, you know, it's not just like everywhere there's a lot of like self-possessed 
independence, but in the Northeast, there's a lot of independence. Mm-hmm. There's more independence than anywhere else, and that's why the two senators sitting in the Senate right now, both who caucus with Democrats but ran at run as independents, are from that Northeast. Bernie Sanders in Vermont, Agnes King, um, Angus King in Maine. And that's, you know, it's, it's just a very unique political environment, very conducive to making a, a statement against Trump and that electorate. But I don't think it's going to have an impact on the nomination. Yeah. So if Nikki Haley comes close or actually defeats Trump, then it basically ends there and just Trump marches on to victory. Is that it? Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I mean, you'll see the horse race coverage as we're seeing. I mean, the, the, <laughs> the you know, election analyst, <laughs> yeah. you know, the election programming on TV. Ha- it, it can't like quit the circus, right? Even if the if the end is foreordained. So I expect a lot of hyperventilating. <laughs> oh, you know, look at this. Maybe she can win in South Carolina. But at the end of the day, I don't see any signs that that base is cracking around Donald Trump. So, Well, just as a hypothetical, if she were to come in first in New Hampshire and be competitive in South Carolina, what happens then? I mean, we're, we're into very minuscule possibility territory here. But yes. is there any second path here in the proceedings with the Republican nomination that may not include Donald Trump or, quite honestly, include Donald Trump blowing up the party by storming off and forming his own thing? Well, the only way that Nikki Haley could win in South Carolina would be if the kind of fissure that I've been talking about needing to see in data last year yeah. suddenly opens up, okay? Right. Because she's not going to win in North in, in South Carolina, and it's going to be devastating in terms of the headlines, because, <laughs> just like yeah. Nick, just like DeSantis, because she was the governor of South Carolina, her home state, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so, you know, I, I would be surprised if Nikki Haley is even within a you know rock throw of Donald Trump at the end of the day in South Carolina, but we will see. How do Republican voters square the idea of Nikki Haley, at least in terms of the polling, have a, having a better shot at defeating Joe Biden, yet Republican voters going with Donald Trump, who has less of a shot of defeating Joe Biden? It seems like a, a party that's so geared around the idea of winning at any cost, including breaking the law, including staging an insurrection uh, against Congress and against the 2020 election. You'd think maybe they'd try to go with the person who's going to be more likely to win than someone who's <laughs> less. You know what I mean? Well, Bob, Bob, that that would mean that you'd have to understand the. Let me take you into the MAGA mind, okay? <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> because you know, yeah, you're thinking like you with your brain, dude. That's in the MAGA <laughs> mind. <laughs> let me try to define your modal Republican, and I'm talking okay. about the vast majority. <laughs> we see this in data. At, Again and again, mm. it's a 70-30 split. 70% of Republicans to this day, despite all the indictments, despite January 6th investigations and the committee report, still will tell you that Joe Biden stole the election, okay? Mm-hmm. It's a 70-30 party. It, it used to be like the Democrats, 30% ideal, you know, extremists, 70% establishment. Now it's the opposite, okay? Mm-hmm. And and in that 70%, which is the controlling, has the controlling shares of the company, Okay, because it's 70 percent. So seven out of 10 Republican voters are in this bucket. In that world, there are some things that you need to understand. Okay, number one, Donald Trump is an innocent man who's being hunted 
and castigated by a weaponized Justice Department, okay? Number two, the COVID virus was all a hoax, but the COVID vaccine will kill you. Don't get the COVID vaccine, okay? (laughs) But even though Donald Trump keeps trying to take credit for the COVID vaccines. Whatever. At the end of the day, he's not going to be talking about COVID vaccines, I promise you, because, because in the MAGA mind, the 70% of Republicans who own that party now the COVID vaccine will kill you. Okay. Okay. Dr. Fossey is not a, a medical hero. He's a medical villain. Right. He designed this thing to kill you. <laughs> it will give you permanent shaking. It's going to make your heart stop, whatever, right? They're, they are, this is not, this sounds so ridiculous, but it's mm. so important. And the reason I'm saying it like this, because it's, that's reality. Now think about this. If that's your reality, and and then then you're saying why would MAGA want to nominate someone who's going to be harder to elect? They do not know that Don. They would a they don't know and b they would never believe. Even if the polling had off season polling is always kind of against the incumbent president. Mm-hmm. If and if the polling had had kind of a you know shucked that trend right mm-hmm. and showed Trump continually trailing Biden. There's no convincing these seventy percent of the Republican Party that is in the Trump cult that this guy's a loser, he's a three-times loser. As Rick Wilson says, everything Trump touches dies, yeah. okay? Yeah. And we see that just last night in Florida because he had he was all over that House race down there, the state legislative race, and the Democrats flipped another seat in another special oh, election, yeah. Yeah. right? So, like, you know, it, so to answer your question long-winded-wise, on Earth 2, Donald Trump is the best candidate you could put forward in the general, and re- the Republican Party lives squarely, my friend, on Earth 2. They're about to nominate a guy who might not appear on all 50 state ballots and who will likely be convicted of felonies before the election. So does that provide some sort of advantage for the rest of us? I mean, it would have to because they seem to be so blindly supporting this guy, even though or even with all of his myriad flaws. Well, Bob, I'm glad you asked that question, because the answer is yes. Yes, it does. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) It does confer an advantage on us because independents look at Donald Trump and like the expression on their face when they smell is like they're smelling a turd. Okay, (laughs) like nobody in the and you can see this in data, even when Biden doesn't do the I mean, some of these polls can be everywhere. Right. And I'm a pollster, so I know better than anyone how much the limitations of what we can glean from polls. So, you know, you've got the MAGA base. And, and there are 70 percent of them convinced this man is God. He's mm-hmm. or anointed by God to deliver them the rebellion against the left that, that they've always dreamed of. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> and and, you know, when you put this guy up against in the general, you can see in polling data after polling data that he struggles with independence when independence start looking again and they're not right now. They don't follow the news. They're not following news in politics like we do. Yeah. They're really out tuned out right now. But when they start to tune in, they're going to be forced to look at the stinking turd that the Republican Party wants to serve them up again. And consider that things are very stable now. The economy's humming. Things are going to be even better as we get later into the year. They're going to be having to choose. Would I go back to chaos when I don't have chaos now, right? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of Americans remember the chaos, that, especially that last year during the presidential election. And I think the Biden team is going to do a good job reminding voters of how much that chaos hurt, hurt them personally and what, what it means to – 
to have a threat of, of a dictatorship personally to them. Yeah. So at the end of the day, nominating Donald Trump is by far, as a person who's going to be working on electing Democrats, by far the best thing that could happen to us electorally. That said, that said, if I could chain, wave a wand and make the nominee not Donald Trump because he is so toxic and so dangerous and he is going to rile up people and he, when he loses – that's why I'm not convinced about the we got to let the voters decide argument on the 14th Amendment thing because we already did that and they don't accept election results they lose. OK. Yeah. And I don't. And I think after months of having him whip them up, there's a real potential for violence when they lose again this time. But at the end of the day, electorally, he is a damaged, flawed terrible, no good, very bad candidate without the things. He was like that in 16, though, like the stuff that we considered so bad or seems so virginal now, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But 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 he was able to overcome that with no- novelty, okay? Yeah. And when I look at the Iowa caucus performance, everyone's, oh, he got 50%. Well, number one, it was, it was basically a three-person field. We don't usually see that. We only see it when an incumbent's running, and that's exactly what we saw, right? Mm-hmm. Two candidates and Trump, so he's not splitting it, the uh, Iowa electorate eight or nine ways, which it often is split, right? Mm-hmm. Even, even if the bottom tier of that only gets a couple points each, that adds up when you add four candidates together to 20. 20 points, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, so his performance there was actually weak in my mind at 50% running as the incumbent front running, you know, as strong as he's supposed to be. But the real weakness comes in the turnout decline. And, and I know folks want to look at the weather. Well, let me tell you, folks, I've been to Des Moines during Iowa caucus. Hmm. It's always cold. Yep. Okay. Yep. It doesn't matter to you. And you, if you're in Iowa, if it's negative five or negative 15, don't make a dime bit of difference. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it's generally negative five for like two months. Okay. Yeah. So it, the weather probably did impact it, but not as much as people think, because where that impact came, it was on the DeSantis and, and especially Nikki Haley caucus people, the independents who registered to vote in the caucus to help Nikki Haley to try to keep Trump from being the nominee for Democratic reasons, small d Democratic reasons. Hmm. Those were the folks that were dissuaded to show up because the weather was particularly bad that night. What happened to Donald Trump in Iowa on turnout tells me the the Trump show is boring now. Okay, yeah. people are not into it anymore. He barely turned out voters. I mean, it was the worst turnout in a decade in Iowa. And when you look at Obama's turnout in two thousand eight, yeah, yeah, <laughs> which happened three days, two days after January first, because it was when that freakish, you know, we were moving the calendar up fight. Right, I remember. And, and we ended up with that freakishly early Iowa caucus, which we all decided was never going to happen again. And that's when they stopped doing the front loading, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that caucus was two days after Jan 3rd. You have to be there physically and you have to be there in person. You have to show up at the caucus site. And Obama turned out over 200,000 voters. I mean, that's what enthusiasm looks like. And, and so I mentioned that because we were just talking about how unattractive Trump is in that pure swing bucket yeah, yeah. of swing voters. Mm-hmm. But what's supposed to offset that, Bob, is this passion of MAGA, okay? Mm-hmm. And what we see is that that is just like the, the outcry, you know, there's people in the streets over, over Palestine. It looks big, but when you look at aggregated data or big data, 
you can see it's not that big, okay? Yeah, yeah. In fact, you know, McKay Coppins wrote last week that he observed red hat crowds leaving Trump rallies early while Trump was still ranting. And this goes to what you were saying about people getting bored with Trump. So is this anecdotal or are you seeing indicators that loyalists are in fact getting bored with Donald Trump? Like for example- that's hard data. That's hard data right there. Wait, can we, if, okay, let's, let's go with the theory. If, you know, we got 70% of MAGA completely bought into the idea that they're living under a dictatorship right now because the last guy stole the election. Okay? <laughs> yeah. I mean, think about, like, if you accept that that's how you think, then violence seems not only, like, uh, reasonable, right? It seems mm-hmm. necessary, right? You're living in this sure. post-democracy dictatorship, right? <laughs> so you, you've, you've got this problem of, like, you know, a very radicalized Republican Party. And there should be the energy for him, right? Yeah. If, if they feel that they've had their their entire country ripped from them illegally, right? <laughs> right? I mean, they should be showing, I, you know what I mean? Like, so to answer your question, the, this is what I would say. If, if, if they're right and the Trump backlash, the MAGA base be mad about the totally had to happen prosecutions, then we should see it in election behavior, right? Yeah. yeah. And we did not, we only have one election right now, but we did not see that in Iowa. You mentioned 70% of Republicans are basically MAGA loyalists. Has that number stayed the same since 2020? Has it gone down or has it increased? Where do we sit right now in terms of Trump's core support? Yeah, yeah. So it was basically 75, 70% going in yeah. to January 6th, okay? okay? Okay. And then it went down for a couple of months while Kevin McCarthy and McConnell and others were willing to admit we had an insurrection. Trump, uh, you know, sent a horde to attack the Capitol. But once <laughs> they decided to, remember the, the, the House Republicans refused to help do a bipartisan you know, special committee into into Jan six. So mm-hmm. they'd say Pelosi had to had to do it without all Republicans except for two, the two that gave up their careers, gave up their careers to take that committee assignment. And that's Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, right? Yep. All right. So once that transition, they went all in and, and torpedoed the committee. That was the moment that McCarthy hitched his wagon to Trump again completely. Yeah. And once that happened and they started to re- Pete, this this frame that January 6th wasn't that bad. Mostly they were peaceful protesters. There was no insurrection, certainly not an insurrection. And, you know, never talk about the other elements that went around. I mean, Capstone's Jan 6th, there was a whole coup plot, Mm -hmm. multi-part, multi-state, multi-indictment coup plot, right? That they don't acknowledge at all, right? And because they did that, because public opinion not always, but mostly or often is shaped from the top down, from a political leaders, political elites, media elites down, okay? The, the, the people who were willing in survey data to say, boy, that insurrection was a step too far. Yeah, yeah. They came home, okay? And they made it home by the time we got to the Wyoming primary where Liz Cheney lost her seat. And Bob, guess what the split was? What's that? 70-30. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Incredible. I mean, that's pretty much it, right? And, yeah, and you yeah. take that, Wyoming's like a, a heavily Republican state. You have a, a basically a re, Republican red district, as red as you can get. 
if they show up to vote, what's the break 70-30? And so to answer your, but to, to just to make sure that you understand this, mm-hmm. like when Trump came down the golden escalator and started to rise in the Republican primary polls in 2016, it was the exact opposite. It was 30-70. Wow. That's not very encouraging, Rachel. Well, you know, I what I tell <laughs> people, though, is is that they should be encouraged because the thing is, is that we we see the, our fate. We see what's coming down the track, mm-hmm. right? And we have the, we already have the thing that we need to do to stop it all. All we have to do is show up to vote in 2024, vote full ticket Democrat up yeah. and down your ballot, and get other people who don't already do that especially to show up and do the same. And we can avoid all of this. What's your take on polling right now? Because there's a lot of discussion, especially among liberals uh, right now on social media and so on. Uh, uh, We can't rely on polling. The polling's janky. We should just disregard any poll that comes down the pike. But I noticed in the Iowa results, they were generally in the range of the polling averages, give or take five points here or there. Are there any polls or averages that we can actually take seriously? I mean, what's your point of view on the current status of polls? Yeah, I'd point your listeners to my to my Substack. It's called the Cycle on Substack. I put out a post about two or three ago, and heading into the holidays, yeah. that urged people to listen to the signal. And the signal was election returns. Mm-hmm. We know in our we know in our election returns from 2022, where we thwarted the red wave with better strategy that really wedged Roe and freedom, and 23, where we did the same. That they, what every time we meet on a field in a competitive race right now, we're beating them. And we just had that affirmed again last night as the calendar year turned to 2024. Yeah. And Florida Dem flipped a house seat. Okay, state house seat there. So we know in the hard data, and this is why Simon Rosenberg, Tom Bonnier, and I were arguing, we're, hey, not so fast, my friends, on these you know, 538, Cook Political Report, mm-hmm. you know, hey, the, the Republicans are, you know, the polls are turning in Republicans' favor and they're going to have this giant red wave. And we're like, yeah, no, we don't see it in any hard data. Not in registration, not in early voting, yeah. not in special election returns, right? Yeah. And and even, even the polling was weaker than what you would expect to see in a wave. So, so, so I put out a post about hard data about how clear the hard data is sending us a signal that in a post-Roe world, where Democrats have an enthusiasm advantage that at least matches the Republicans, which is entry-level what we needed to survive in 2022. But in terms, I then talk about polling, and I try to explain to folks, look, number one, there's, it's never been, there, in 2011, People were freaking out because Obama was pouring so poorly compared to Mitt Romney yeah. at this in the fall of 2011. Mm-hmm. Same thing happened to George W. Bush against John Kerry in 2004. Yep. Okay, look back, and there's not our. I mean, our polling in some ways is polling is worse than it's ever been because nobody has landlines. Blah, blah, blah. It's hard to get a representative sample, but they're also better than they've ever been because if you look back past 2008, you're going to start to see there's almost no polling data. (laughs) People didn't poll. It just doesn't exist, right? Mm -hmm. So it's hard to say, like, how long that pattern continues. But we know 
that there were at least two or three three presidents who were incumbents that polled poorly the year before and then won re-election and, and not even in tight elections, right? Yeah. So, you know, what I'll be trying to, to get people to understand in my book, Hit Them Where It Hurts, How to Save Democracy by Beating Republicans at Their Own Game, yep. which comes out February 6th and can be pre-ordered now, right? What I explained to them is, yes, in your world where you're paying all this attention and you know who Mike – who Mike Johnson is, and you know the Republican Party controls the House, and you know there's a, uh, a conservative majority on the Supreme Court, then, you know, why isn't, you know, how can people have these opinions? Well, they don't know any of that. They're mm-hmm. not paying attention. They don't give a shit about politics. They've been cultured. Many Americans are cultured to actually think you're morally superior staying out of politics, not voting. Okay? <laughs> God. And, and, we, in the most epic election, we get 60% of, of eligible adults that could vote to show up and vote, right? And 60%, that leads 40% of other adults who could vote, don't even give a fuck, it, against Trump and Biden, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. So, like, if you accept that, if you can get yourself to accept that, your world will make a lot sen- more sense and you'll start to understand the limitations in polling. That said... What you're asking a horse race poll to do in a toss-up race is statistically impossible, folks, okay? And I, mm. have, a, I have another wow. post on polling in my, my blog about this because of this thing that you hear every time called margin of error. Yep. And though they'll mention there's a three-point or four-point margin of error, and, and I think most, mostly because of my ranting online, people are starting to get better about reporting those with the statistical limits clear, mm-hmm. right? But at the end of the day, how often have you turned on the TV, seen a survey that says, you know, Trump's leading Biden in, Mass- in Michigan 51 to 49? Okay, well, that, the way that they have described that poll result to you is wrong. Okay, <laughs> that is not what that poll says. That poll is reporting a 59 or, uh, uh, you know, 51 49 split. But if there's a three or four point margin of error, Trump could have as high as 53 or mm. Biden could have as high as 52. Okay? Yep. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, so you, you, what you are, what we are asking polls to do when it comes to election outcomes is something that the poll cannot do. It can tell us this race is, a, is, is way advantaging another one of the two candidates outside of the margin of error, or it's a toss up, but mm-hmm. it will never be able to honestly tell you this candidate is going to win when we're talking about races that are going to come down to two points. Okay, back with more Rachel Bittacoffer right after these words. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You can't always get a clean you can feel good about inside and out. 
unless you're using Bubble Genius Bath and Body Products. See, Bubble Genius is a woman-owned small business proudly creating our vegan-friendly products in America and supporting other U.S. businesses by buying our ingredients and supplies from them as often as possible. Plus, you'll be hard-pressed to find packaging as recyclable as ours. Visit BubbleGenius.com and check out our cause-related items too, like our global warming soap and a lot more. We donate our proceeds for those items to worthy causes, like organizations combating climate change and mountaintop removal mining. Good stuff like that. We also send our products to the troops overseas through our Buy a Soldier a Shower campaign. Because the least we can do is keep them smiling and smelling great, right? So visit BubbleGenius.com and feel good and clean. Bubble Genius, doing our part to make the world a better place, one bathtub at a time. That's BubbleGenius.com. And I want to go back to a point you made a second ago. And the best indicator of electoral success, as far as I'm concerned, for the Democrats and Joe Biden isn't the polls. It's actually the trend of Election Day and special election victories so far. So yep. de- Democrats are on this winning streak. It goes back to about 2018, right? I mean, it's consistent. We can actually look at this as a definitive metric for what to expect in November based exclusively on, for example, this most recent special election, which was successful for the Democrats. I don't see the Republicans defying odds that way in any of these. Yeah, I mean, you say back to 18, but like, let me get folks to understand that that shouldn't have happened. What should what should have happened is what to Democrats in 2022 in the midterms is what did happen to them in 2021 in Virginia. Right. Hmm. Because. Because they had been winning, and I was like, that's great, but you were the out party, and now you're the in party, and you have to do it differently. It's not going to work like it did before when Trump was in the presidency, and you were the out party, okay? Yeah. We learned that lesson after 2021. I wanted to spare Virginia that lesson, but I knew they were going to be the scapegoat, and we learned it. But we got a big help, Bob, in June, May of 2022, when they when they when the memo leaked for the road repeal, very few things in our hyper-partisan electorate can move public opinion. That's why you see no change in Biden approval, even as the economy is doing better and 63% of people think their own financial situation is good. Yeah. Like there are changes, like there's a disconnect between public opinion is conditional party now, party allegiance, and that's true for even independent leaners, right? Yep. So, but I knew, and so I knew when the pandemic, I had put a forecast out for the presidency in the New York Times, right, <laughs> before the pandemic came out in 2020. And I knew I was still going to be right because the pandemic did not change Trump's approval ratings at all because we already all disapproved of him and the Republican base is tribal in a way that we are not. And they were never going to admit that that man sucked no matter what he did. He could stand on that lectern and tell him to inject nuclear you know, fuel <laughs> and it wouldn't matter, right? And, and I show this in posts and things I wrote, you know, the flat line, there's no, every other country you see public op- op- opinion respond to the pandemic, not in the U.S. So when I said that Roe was going to have changed things in a way that the pandemic couldn't, I meant it. And with all the strategic shifts and messaging work that parts of the party has been doing and ran part, partly successfully, you know, in Arizona, Michigan, especially, not so much on the East Coast yet, but we're working on it, ran the right strategy combined with that row enthusiasm effect. We are winning in, in the hard elections. So, yeah, I feel good about where we're at. I'm as good as you can feel mm-hmm. heading into an election. 
in which if you lose, probably millions of people will suffer. You know, this just occurred to me, Rachel, are people deliberately responding in ways that damage the other side? Uh, in other words, uh, you know, you answer a, a polling phone call and you tell a pollster that the economy sucks because you want to damage Joe Biden. Could that be what's causing such confounding poll results? I mean, I think in the post I try to show people like, look, OK, all it is when I say that the polling responses are now a mem- now measuring latent partisanship in the electorate. Mm-hmm. This is what I mean. OK. And in the, uh, one of these two articles on my blog, I on my Substack, I wrote about this. OK. When you see, you know, the transition from Trump to Biden, within that month, you look at Gallup uh, data, which is, you know, it's, it, it tracks for decades. So that's why it's a useful survey indicator. It goes, so you, you look at uh, Gallup data and there's an immediate flip amongst Republicans. As soon as Joe Biden gets sworn into the White House, the economy sucks. Right? Now, it, now it happens. It happens that we get the inflation not long after, because as soon as things reopened, that's what caused the inflation, because right. there's no supply inflation when there's no demand. And then suddenly there was demand. OK, so you can you cannot. But I could go back to the switch from Bush to Obama, Obama to to Trump. Every time the tutelage, the control of the government shifts, you'll see immediately partisans flip. On, on the economy. Yep. And it didn't used to be like that, but we're living in a very atypical period of hyperpartisanship and tribalization. Yeah. It's very unique. You can't make comparisons to this electorate, to any electorate in the past because of that uniqueness, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, so what, 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 what we're seeing and what you'll see through this election year is no matter how much change there is in the economy, you're never going to see Republicans approve of Joe Biden's handling or independent, right-leaning independence. They're always going to say it's, it's terrible, no matter what is happening. So are voters going to get the message about the economy by November? I mean, is this going to change at all, or is it still going to be driven by negative partisanship? No, it's driven by the news cycle, right? So yeah. like, if the news is talking about how good the economy is and not about inflation and gas prices raising, yeah. then people's perception will change. Yep. I see. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that makes but sense. Not re- but not Republican and independents, right? Rightly oh, independents. Yeah. yeah. So you will see, I mean, Dem- Democrats are still willing to be more honest about approval, right? And that's why Joe Biden has historic low. I mean, there is no one, Trump's never pulled lower in approval than some of these Biden numbers we've seen. Yeah. And the reason is, as Trump was telling his voters to drink bleach and take, you know, horse tranquilizer, Right. And, and 3000 of them were dropping a day. You never saw a Republican say he's doing a bad job. Right. Yeah. Re- Democrats are willing to criticize Biden. They're much less tribal coalition. That's why independent runs in the general election are so much more dangerous for Democrats, because our coalition are those people that are that are going to think, you know, I think this guy makes sense, this Joe Manchin. (laughs) And they're not going to be thinking like, but if I vote for this guy, Donald Trump will be the president, right? Mm -hmm. So it it comes down to, I I think the economy is, 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 oh, the economy is, what I've told Democrats, and I say this in the book, the economy is the top issue every year. So the idea that we're just going to let Republicans own it is crazy, okay? 
And if you look at polling data, the brand ownership of the Republican Party on good for the economy has been stable and endured two recessions, especially the one they caused themselves in 2008. It's all top level awareness because nobody's reading the news following current events to know who Kevin McCarthy is. Right. Mm. So at that top line narrative is what's going to define those people's views. And we need to control that narrative. Just out of curiosity, where would you prefer rank and file Democrats to be right now in terms of their mindset uh, looking ahead to the election? Would you rather them feel like underdogs or would you rather them feel like they're leading the game right now? Underdogs all across the board, right? Yes, God, please. I want him to be the underdog all the way through like Obama was in 2012, probably saved his ass. Yeah, yeah. So that's an interesting thing because it goes directly to complacency where if if people feel like they're ahead and there's no reason to panic, then they'll get complacent, maybe not turn out as much, right? Exactly. I mean, we don't want to be so underdog that people get feel like it's hopeless, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like, I would prefer not to. So like last cycle, I knew Biden would never hit his highest polling, you know, general election national numbers, which is stupid. I mean, you got to keep in mind, we're trying to really tell you what's going to happen in seven states using national data that really pollutes it, right? So he was at 58 percent in those national polls. And I was like, that's never going to happen because of the electorate we have is too partisan and too hyper-partisan, too tribal. That will never happen, right? Mm-hmm. But like at the end of the day, he, he you know, whooped him by 7 million. It's still, that is a huge win in this electoral environment. Um, but you know, it made me nervous, the media commentary heading into election day, that he was going to win so handily because I did worry mm-hmm. that it would cause people to pull back, right? I definitely would prefer a narrative of a toss-up all the way through. So how do you peg people like Tom Bonier and Simon Rosenberg and Christopher Boozy and and maybe even some of your forecasts as well, Rachel, that paint kind of a a more positive outlook, a more optimistic outlook for the election versus maybe a message that's a little bit more cautious, like, holy shit, this may turn out that Donald Trump wins. We got to bring the energy and, and so on. So should we be leaning more toward the optimistic side or the more pessimistic side of these forecasts? Yeah, so this post that I keep pushing your audience to go read, and then you can read it on the cycle for free. They don't even have to subscribe if they don't want to. Um, talks about uh, t- talks about my optimism, mm-hmm. right? Because of the hard data, but it makes. But I want to make it clear, and I want to make sure your audience gets this. What I am telling you is this, audience. Okay, it's going to come down to seven states. Yeah. It's going to come down to about 100,000 votes in those seven states. Mm-hmm. We are going to make it clear to the electorate, this tuned out electorate that follows no news or politics, knows nothing about their coup plot. We're going to make it clear to them that this a cycle is dictatorship versus democracy. Yeah. And we're going to personalize what that loss of freedom means to voters. Okay. We are going to give voters the choice and make sure they know it's the choice. But at the end of the day, Everybody who hears my voice right now needs to understand 47%, 48% of their fellow Americans are going to vote for dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. It's going to be a dogfight. It's going to be a dogfight today, three months from now, four months from now, October. There's nothing we can do or I can tell you that's going to tell you there's not about a 50% chance that Donald Trump can win. And we have to do everything that we can, to, you know, putting issues aside, putting anger about Hamas or uh, Palestine aside, whatever it is, 
everybody who is not in that 70% of the MAGA cult of the Republican Party must do everything they can to win this election. What do you think about Biden making MAGA extremism the central front of his reelect? Do you think that's a smart idea? That's team reform strategy there, Bob. So, of course, I like it. We did not do this until 2022, folks, okay? Now we're finally calling them extremists and making sure that voters don't look at somebody like David Schweikert in Arizona 1 and think that guy's a moderate Republican when he voted to decertify an election, broke his oath of office, has voted for three national abortion bans, right? Like we have to start making sure that we tell this tuned out, low civic, low interest, low knowledge electorate what the threat is. And so when you look at Biden and those teams, you know, certainly other people have pushed, you know, or jumped in and in on this strategy. So I don't know how it made it into the Biden team strategy because I'm not working with them right now. Yeah, yeah but, interesting. But that is my strategy and I am glad they are running it. Are there metrics indicating that that may be the winning strategy, that people would respond most to that, that that's going to bring the energy and bring the turnout? No, it's absolutely yeah. critical. I mean, yeah. look at in, in the book, I lay out how in 2022 in Arizona and both in Michigan and Michigan, all three of the women running up there statewide down in Arizona two at least two of the races, the, the governor's race late and the secretary of state race right away made it about that kind of messaging. And mm. they cleaned up. I mean, especially Adrian Fontes, secretary of state, he ran hard on democracy and, and made it clear to Republicans, you know, there's McCain Republicans in, in Arizona, what it meant if these, if these, if a person like Mark Fincham was, was an insurrectionist was running against him to take control of Arizona's election system, right? Yeah. You bet. If you want people to know that, they will not know it, Bob, unless we tell them. Right, right. Right? That, so if you would think that people magically know Mark Fincham was an insurrectionist who's an extremist who is dangerous to their future, then you're then that's where you go wrong. And mm-hmm. and, and in Michigan and Arizona, we ran hard on that. In Florida, North Carolina, Ohio, they ran the traditional strategy of one message for base Democrats with and then one message to the persuasion pool. And what's that message? Oh, I'm not one of those Democrats. Well, you know what you've done there is your opponent says, don't vote for Tim Ryan. He's a Democrat or something wrong with Democrats. And Tim Ryan's campaign saying, yep, sure is. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> yeah. so and, you know what I mean? So when you have a, 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 a party that's tried to overthrow the government and then double down on it and is now trying to say they need to pardon the insurrectionist. Right. This is probably the time to make the case to the electorate, to that swing voter pile. These people are dangerous. Don't vote for them. And they will not know it if we don't tell them. So specific to the title of your book, Hit Them Where It Hurts, which is, again, coming out February 6th. So it's right around the corner. So where are the Republicans most vulnerable? So like here, here's what I, I tell you in the book. I, I explain, look. You, they, what they do is brand, brand messaging against our entire brand so that, you know, Abigail Stanberger, who is a very centrist Democrat, becomes a raging socialist lunatic, right? Mm-hmm. And, and how does she do that? Well, you don't need individual statements for her proving it. She's part of this party that's a raving socialist lunatic cult that wants to, you know, turn your boy girl boy into a girl, right? Yeah. So, so it's guilt by association, right? The only way to perform that effect in the, in, with voters, again, the other way, hitting back, 
is to make sure we need more partisanship in our messaging, not less. And we have to be running and defining the entire Republican brand as an existential threat to the voter personally, not to out groups, because we, you know, liberals are making messaging for for liberals right? <laughs> and not for humans. Like what we need to be doing. We are freaks because we actually care about what happens to other people yep. that are not. Okay. And, and like, if you look at the bell curve of empathy, like there we all are over in the big tail on the left-hand side, having a ton of empathy. Okay. So the people making the ads, people running for office, people working on staff, we're all liberals. And we're making policy on this idea that people think like us. They do not think like us. Humans are self-interested. Even liberals are self-interested, actually. Okay? It's just a matter of being less self-interested. Sure. It's not doesn't mean we aren't self-interested. Right? Voters are self-interested. And so your messaging should be personalizing threats to them, not telling them, hey, we need you to go vote to save some out-group they don't care about. Okay? <laughs> so hit them where it hurts is talking about brand offensive, how the Republicans built their machine, why it's so, how it's so effective, how it functions, right? The limitations in our system, the things we can't replicate, and the things that we can, which is this brand-centric messaging that worked miracles in Michigan and Arizona. Here's a hypothetical for you, Rachel. If you could run the DNC, what would be your first action as chairperson? I don't need to run the DNC because Jamie Harrison does an oh, yes, excellent of course. job of yes, that. Yes, obviously. Right, right. To be <laughs> clear about best, that, yeah. Yeah, to be clear, Jamie, I think, is the best chair the DNC has ever had. He was the right man at the right time, and he's doing the right job, and we would not be in the position that we came out of in 2022 without Jamie Harrison in that yep. position. Um, I'm a little biased. He blurbs my book, and you know, I consider him a personal friend, so I should probably say that. But he um, he's incredible at running the DNC what pro- the problem for folks is they don't understand what the DNC is designed to do. The mm. DNC is designed to to focus on field organizing, making sure the state parties have what they need to compete, and raising money. Okay? Bingo. They, Bingo. Yeah, they don't yeah. do messaging and mm-hmm. they don't do campaign stuff. Right? Thank you, thank right, you, so. thank you for emphasizing that. I've been <laughs> saying that for years now. Don't look to the DNC for messaging. That's not their job. I mean, now, so when, but when you ask me this, and I think Jamie has leaned into this, and I think that's why he was willing to publicly endorse my book. And he gave it an endorsement that, you know, basically says, hey, every Democrat running for office, every consultant, every strategist, everyone needs to use this book because this is how you flip our defensive electioneering system to an offensive style system, right? Like, so I know I, 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 I appreciate that, right? But let's say that I could change something in DNC. It would be that we need a institution, very centralized, that handles the messaging across the party, pumps it down from state legislative races all the way up, governor, house, senate, presidential, that is that is doing what hit him where it hurts, lays out on messaging, a brand offensive assault. It gets the reason you need that centralization is number one. You can't have decisions made slowly and bureaucracy slows things down. Yeah. But number two, if we, we do not have their ecosystem, and I uh, lay this out in the book, we don't have their media ecosystem. And Charlie Kirk, 
who's who's full on fascist now, and he tweeted out about how we should all hate Martin Luther King on Martin Luther oh, yeah. King Jr. Yeah. Day, right? Yeah. That guy has an $80 million budget he gets from billionaires to do youth engagement on college campuses. $80 million, dude, okay? Holy so shit. So what we need is we need to get serious. We need billionaires to invest in infrastructure. We need a centralized campaign apparatus. God, I want to run it that is designed to get everybody pounding the same message because we don't have right-wing media, we don't have their news chamber, we don't have Fox News, but if we get every candidate talking on message on the same talking points, we can create that cacophony effect too. We've shown we can do it in other states. I'm really excited about what we're, what the future holds if we can beat back this this uh, incredibly high-stakes fascist movement going on now. That's interesting. So the DNC should, in fact, take on messaging as being one of the central yes. prongs of its mission statement. So exactly. is that more in terms of inventing the message or coordinating the messages? It's both, among, right? Okay. So like you yeah. come in, you let me reconfigure the messaging so it's all hit them where it hurts appropriate, okay? Mm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then it's about centralizing it, right? So you've got the state parties, you go through the state parties, you work with the state, you know, the state parties there with the state legislative candidates, make sure the swing map doesn't help us to have the long shot races doing good messaging. We want them to be there. We And I'm not saying you exclude them, mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, Bob, you get the swing races doing that. It's exactly what they did in Virginia in 2021. You'll never, I lay this out in the book. What did Glenn Youngkin run in Virginia on? What was his issue? Do you know? Critical race theory. There you go. Yep. Okay. Critical race theory is a, is a word you had never even fucking heard of <laughs> prior to fall of 2020, you know, fall of 2021, right? Yeah. So they took that, and I lay this out with Rufo, and he's bragging about doing this now with the, with Claudine Gay's fire in, in uh, Harvard, right? But I lay out how he took that. You know, this thing is so, like, let's let's define, like, let's define racial politics around this this most scariest sounding thing that no one knows. The ambiguity is good, okay, because pe people fill in the blanks. You And you saw people get interviewed on the stump. Well, do you even know what CRT is? No, but I know it's terrible, right? Like, they don't need to know what it is. And, and we took, seriously, Glenn Youngkin, you want to sell me on the fact that personally, Glenn Youngkin's political interest is CRT? No. Right. Okay. Yeah. If you're looking at what Glenn Youngkin, if he, you know, all politicians like policy, his policy priorities, race in schools is probably, was never even on the list yeah. before that election campaign. And the swing candidates running for the Virginia House in that cycle also never heard of CRT, never cared about it. Okay. Yeah. But they all made it the issue that they campaigned on so that their strategy was centralized, so that it creates that cacophony, it forced the media to make it a household name. And ultimately, it cost um, Terry McAuliffe the election, right? Mm -hmm. and, 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 it is, and it's a word no one had ever heard of 10 months before election day. Exactly, right? yeah. So that's what, what I'm, when I say that we need the right message, and I think hit them where it hurts is that right message, but we need the centralization component too, the distribution co component. It's definitely both. And that's why I think a new infrastructure within the party would be appropriate to do with that. One last question for you, Rachel, before we talk about uh, hit them where it hurts. On the uh, congressional side, are you lining up basically with the uh, general forecast that the Democrats may lose the Senate but pick up the House? Is that where that's going to land? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, this the Senate is is the House last cycle. The House last cycle was basically impossible to hold. Yeah, and we held them to a five seat win, which mm-hmm. is amazing. Exactly. And no one may maybe recognizes how amazing that is, but let me tell you, amazing. Okay. Mm-hmm. This cycle we have the inverse problem. I do think the House map significantly advantages us, especially now with all these court decisions hitting back these partisan gerrymanders. Okay. So I, I think the House is, is in, in good shape if we run good strategy and DCCC is starting to wake up on that, um, that we could we can really do it. But the Senate map, we lose Joe Manchin. So we're already at a Senate minority mm-hmm. heading in. I mean, we actually have 50 seats because of Pennsylvania. So we're already losing one, and we have to run the table elsewhere. We've got what might be a three-person race in Arizona. Kristen Sinema is an independent, a Democrat, and a Republican on that ballot. So basically two Democrats against Carrie Lake, okay? Yeah. Splitting, splitting that vote up. And then you've got, so that's a risk. you got Montana where, you know, I'm not sure if Tester understands, you know, what strategically it's going to take to win in the, you got to, you got, you can't do, I don't know that he's got the Mark Kelly. Mark Kelly is able to stay above the fray in 2022 in Arizona mm-hmm. and win because he's a NASA astronaut. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's next level over farmer, right? Montana and farmer. So I, <laughs> I worry about Montana. I hope that they understand they need to go after Republicans and make sure that independent voters in Montana cannot bring themselves to cast a ballot for a Republican senator. And, you know, I'm hoping that 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 will will happen because we have zero room for error in the Senate. And, folks, if we lose the Senate, then you want to I mean, unless unless we win the rest and the fever breaks, I think the best way to break the fever in the Republican Party finally is to a sweep of all three. And so that's why I'm highly focused in Florida Senate race there because we need that seat and we should be winning in Florida. We can win in Florida if we run the campaign that I want to run which, you know, basically is a campaign that just napalms Rick Scott, mm-hmm. the man who wants to overturn Social Security and Medicare. You so know, it shouldn't be hard. Hearing you talk about the Senate, <laughs> the thing just occurred to me, Rachel, that uh, losing the Senate would make it very difficult for Joe Biden to appoint any Supreme yes. Court justices. I w- or any justices. I mean, the way, <laughs> yeah. this behavior, the way this party behaves right now, folks, and, and you have to understand, like, our wins are great. Like, but it will wipe out the only sane left people, right? Because the only mm-hmm. sane Republicans are the ones that come from swing races, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so if we lose the Senate, my estimate, my guess would be that that will not. You know, we need a we need the Republican Party to have a come to Jesus moment. Mm-hmm. The best way to do that is to sweep them, especially in the Senate map where they think they have an advantage. Yeah. And if we don't do that, the price is potentially going to be. A total freeze, not just on SCOTUS, any SCOTUS vacancy that could pop up, but maybe the entire federal appointment process. So the book, Hit Him Where It Hurts, How to Save Democracy by Beating Republicans at Their Own Game. What's the backstory? How did this all come together? So I quit my job in 2020, fall 2021, yeah. tried to do a strike, tried to do a super PAC, but I have big ideas and no Rolodex to fund it. Yeah. Big ideas don't help anybody without money. And I realized I could be much more effective working directly at the party. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I changed my focus to getting as many Democrats and swing races as possible to make the stakes clear to voters, to run against the Republican brand, to define their opponents as extremists, to make that extremism message tie back to how it affects voters personally, right? And this book is allows me to have that conversation with the entire country at once, yeah. and that was the motivation to have it, to write it. 
Outstanding. Well, I can't wait to read it. You know, I've got the galleys here. He <laughs> sent me the galleys for the book, and I haven't looked at it yet because I'm lazy and I procrastinate. So I'm <laughs> I'm absolutely going to get to it. That was great. I sent that. I didn't want to send galleys out. Galleys, folks, for the lay people out there listening, those are unedited versions, and I'm such a nerd. I was like, I don't want to <laughs> send any time. And there were typos in my galley, big ones. Like, there's entire chunks that change. So I, I'm glad you didn't read it. Now the advanced copies will be coming out shortly, and and our release day is less than a month away. So you should just wait, and and the, you know you can get it in audio book. I recorded the audio book myself, so you get full Bedekoffer snark. Oh yes, all the way through, right? <laughs> Outstanding. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so don't wow. feel bad. Yeah, I'm glad you didn't read that. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I've got a link in the description, of course, to pick up the book. I guess you can pre-order now. Is that it? And you can. Uh, yeah, and then and then my Substack is the cycle at Substack. If you want to link that as well, yep, absolutely. That'll be in the description at bobseska.com and wherever they, they include links. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They will see those posts in there, and then uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm I hope people will read the book. Uh, it's it's written. It's you know very much about democratic strategy in the system, but it's meant for to empower the reader and show them what they can do in their own world to help us get this, get, you know, beat back this fascist movement. It's all or nothing in 2024, folks. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for being here on extremely short notice. I should emphasize that. I really, really appreciate you stopping by. And it's always, always great to talk with you. It was great to talk to you too, Bob. Bob.